Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Vinegar Syndrome release of There's Nothing Out There, one of my favorite movies. This is Nathan with The Hysteria Continues and my fellow podcast co-hosts. Uh, Justin, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. The I am uh, There's a Nothing Out There virgin. Uh, I've never seen this film before. Before I um, was, we were asked to cover this uh, by those nice folks at Vinegar Syndrome. So hopefully, I will be bringing a newbie's uh, sort of view on this. But I know it's a film that you've seen many, many times, Nathan, before, isn't it? I have a long history with this movie, which I'll get into a little bit later. That should be fun. Uh, how are you doing, Eric? I am doing very well. I'm also a virgin. <laughs> when it comes to this movie, I should add. Uh, yeah, so I hadn't seen this until maybe this day last week. So, yeah, I'll be bringing a new perspective on it, too. Uh, Justin, I mean, uh, Joseph, <laughs> I know that you're not a virgin to this movie. No, I I blew my uh, There's Nothing Out There wad many years ago. Um, oh, God. But, but I've always enjoyed it. Um, it's a fun little film. I love this opening scene in the video store because I know you guys are probably like me and just absolutely miss the old days of the VHS video stores. Um, I love that you can see a lot of the artwork. Um, the director uh, does a lot of close-ups on the artwork in this video store, which is just fantastic. There's Grizzly. Yeah, yeah. This scene, um, this scene really uh, sets the tone for what this film, um, what this film is. Absolutely. Right. Rats Night of Terror appeared there. One of my yep. favorites. I love we're going to name them off. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't help it. Mutilator. Yes, what a classic. Evil Dead. Midnight. <laughs> um, Harold Hellnut. Nice. What's that one with the piano? Where the girl Blade in the Dark. Okay, of course, yeah. Night, Night Kill. Kill. Mm. Uh. Um, this uh, video store had an interesting story behind it that the director had shared where the owner of the, of the video store itself had gave him permission to film, but the uh, owner of the building, the landlord, did not. And he showed up when they were almost finished filming and caused a big uh, scene there about them not having permission to film his building. So they had to wrap up early, unfortunately. Well, it's interesting that it's uh, it's kind of this is uh, the classic dream sequence, isn't it? Very Nightmare on Elm Street, or you know, playing with the whole dreams thing. But um, uh, I love a boss-eyed kind of uh, <laughs> look here, which is kind of very again very much sets the tone for the rest of the movie. Um, I thought it was interesting that, that when the reviews were done, we'll talk about the release of the film, uh, obviously, l later, but the New York Daily News critic, the Phantom of the Movies, um, uh, compared this pre-credit sequence to um, to uh, Clyde Barker's short story, A Son of Cell Celluloid. Uh, so um, we'll talk about how the film was released and its kind of reaction and its kind of growing reputation uh, a little bit later. But this, this the, the teenage character there, Lisa Grant, I mean, she didn't seem to do a great deal more she obviously turns up a little bit later in the movie uh you know kind of probably the funniest moment but uh she i think she went on to um be on uh, a few tv shows with dick van dyke uh is it kind of murder something or other one of his, his uh, dick van dyke's uh, murder shows diagnosis murder that's the one yes uh, but she didn't go on to have a massive career. Although interestingly, actually, some of the uh, the uh, the people, the cast and crew of this, uh, some of them went on to some very interesting developments in their lives, not necessarily all to do with acting. Apparently, from what I've heard about this film, is um, there was going to be a sequel called "There's Still Nothing Out There," but it was scrapped for a 
a different film, which is set in the same universe titled uh, This Isn't Funny Anymore. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and assume that Justin and Eric have not seen this, but have you seen this, Nathan? No, I would love to, though. Yeah. I haven't seen it either. I don't. I really don't know what the plot is. Um, but what's yeah. his post plot for the sequel? And we're getting way ahead of ourselves here, though, is to pick up directly at the end of this one. But it sort of meshes um, the story of this film with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Was his idea? There was supposed to be a cannibal family in the sequel. Oh, fun! Mm. I kind of. Uh, I always wondered if that was a, a joke on his part because I couldn't actually see how they, given the kind of uh, the slightly checkered and colourful kind of history of the making of this movie, whether or not they would have actually got the last three characters alive in this movie, the actors and actress, back together again for a sequel. Well, one of them probably wouldn't. No, the the idea for the sequel was to kill off um, the surviving three characters. Only one survives for the sequel. The other three or two are killed off in a car crash at the start. Right. So that gets rid of the the trouble actress, shall we say? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> she is. Yeah. I I just want I to mention these. Credits. Yeah, the credit sequence is um, is amazing actually isn't it well amazing it's kind of it's um i love the way it, it's got this kind of giorgio uh, moroder kind of donna summer i feel love kind of uh disco beat with that kind of early 90s uh sort of cut up uh, dialogue which is so prevalent in music at the time wasn't it but also that um uh yeah that kind of almost 1950s sci-fi anthology you know the, the outer limits or the twilight zone kind of feel to it as well mm. And I think this is supposed to be a shot from inside the creature. Which end? The arm. <laughs> the tentacle. I see. Okay. Oh, Justin, already dragging the oh, commentary Justin. down with your with your seagulling style what? antics. Mm. Yes. <laughs> I wonder how she survived because, I mean, the creature was right in the car with her. Okay. Well, the idea for the sequel was that she is possessed by the, the alien in the sequel. Oh, okay. Okay. And she, her eyes turn green sort of afterwards and uh, i think the creature bursts out of her stomach and kind of a nod to alien oh i would love to see an, a sequel to this movie yes i think that would have been quite awesome going back to the um the video store opening scene apparently um one of rolf konevsky's short films was playing on the tv uh, it's called just listen oh yes hmm yeah, I did wonder what that was because again, that's uh, it's very kind of postmodern, isn't it? And that that whole thing of uh, which is something the the screen films do, and of course we talk about screen films a little bit later on. But uh, that um, horror films playing uh, on the screen and sometimes self-referencing each other or the director. So that's what uh, another thing that Rolf uh, Konevsky uh, got out of the bat before Kevin Williamson and uh, Wes Craven. Uh, he was only, what, he was 19 when he made this? 20, maybe? I think he was 20. 20. I mean, the title of his book was Making Nothing at the Age of 20, so. Yes, that makes sense then. Yeah. It's the title, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was filmed in 1989, but didn't really start getting screens till 1991, was it? Yeah. Yeah, it got, a, it got um, like a, a festival release in 91, but I think it got like a video release in 92. Um, yeah, Rolf Knesset. Rolf Konevsky was born in 1969, and I think uh, he rapped in 1989, so yeah, he would have been about 20. Mm. He's probably about 18 or 19 when he wrote the script, from what I understand, though. Mm, That's I've... awesome, actually. I'm, I don't even want to tell, or I don't want to tell anybody listening to this what kind of movies I made at that age. 
Well, they don't have to wonder. They can just go on YouTube and have a look. <laughs> I was a little younger, but still. <laughs> Nowhere near this level. Well, it's well, incredible, isn't it? If you look on the yeah. blackboard, you could see we're in movie hell. It was written on the blackboard. <laughs> well, this is a very much a kind of takeoff, isn't it, of that whole uh, sort of teenage horror uh, movie? You know, even you know, even today with like the um, uh, the new Halloween film, that still uh, features a kind of throwback scene of a teenager in the classroom, and it, you know, all the way through from when they did it in Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween, it's kind of. Any college space or school set slash movie uh, has that uh, convention or that kind of uh, that trope. And obviously, this isn't a slasher movie, is it? This is is. I mean, you know, if you in the widest possible terms, you could sort of term this not as a slasher movie, but you certainly got teenagers being chased around the house by a, some malevolent force. But in this case, is a kind of a giant frog from Mars. But it's it is playing with the slasher movie conventions uh, certainly uh, because really at their kind of time in the early 80s i mean you did have some horror slasher mashups with aliens didn't you like um without warning uh evils of the night those type of uh, movies in the 1980s but certainly mostly most uh, most teenagers were facing a far more um land earth-based uh, sort of um menace uh with a sort of man in overalls and a knife usually wasn't it or a hockey mask uh, not a giant frog well, the character of Mike even says at one point that he was debating back and forth as to what was after them as either an axe murderer or a creature from outer space. Hmm. So he was right on the ladder. Would have been There's interesting. The director. I was at him. Yeah. Okay, I knew he he had a walk in, yeah. uh, walk on part, didn't he, at the beginning, like very Hitchcockian. Hmm. I mean, he was reading stuff with him. It's interesting, given that he was only 20 years old. I mean, uh, my understanding was that he wasn't a horror movie fan growing up. Uh, apparently, he wanted to be a professional clown, didn't he, when he was a kid? But um, certainly, you know, like many others, making a horror movie is a good way to break into an industry. Is kind of what people, and I've said this so many times before, but what Roger Corman would say to young people wanting to break into the film industry is, you know, get a group of attractive young people into a house and kill them off one by one. You know, it's low budget. You don't know no name, cast, um, and you should be able to make a profit. Um, but uh, this film probably has the one of the longest gestations to success of any movie, really, doesn't it? Or certainly it's a, a film that's now got the reputation that it does have. Uh, so, um, but yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, it, it, I thought that what the director was saying, you know, and what impressed me most, um, uh, you know, about this was the and it sounds ironic here, but it's a level of maturity from what he, he was trying to do, which was subvert the um, the tropes of the teenage horror movie. Uh, and he talks about, for instance, even when the film has got lots of nudity in it, the one scene where there is nudity, where you expect nudity in the shower scene, he subverts it by not actually showing nudity. So, um, so it's quite um, a mature look to a very what could be turned an immature movie and i don't mean that in a bad way i mean it's a you know i off the bat i would say uh, my feelings about this movie given it's the first time I've, I've seen it and i've wanted to see it for a long time but i'm not aware it ever got released <clears throat> in the uk uh i've never come across it here before but certainly i've i've heard of it by its reputation and i you know i really really enjoyed it i think it's a great fun movie and it does um, it gets everything right in so much it's got even the arsehole characters are actually quite likeable 
which is something we always talk about and saying the problems with modern horror movies and slasher movies is that quite often uh, directors seem to actually dislike their their people, the characters so much that they make them really unlikable and it's a, a real failing of uh, many modern horror movies so the director, you know, even though he's parodying um, horror movies in a postmodern way before it became postmodern in some ways he it's it's interesting that um he still has a lot of affection for these characters and that kind of shines through yeah these characters um i've said this before but like in a lot of the newer um horror films the characters are written intentionally obnoxious and i think what they do here and they do it on a lot of these types of movies is that the characters are um they're obnoxious but they're likably obnoxious it's hard to explain it's more like they have just these tiny character flaws that you would like it's kind of funny to watch it on screen, but you wouldn't want to hang out with these people. But like, say, as in these newer movies, they're just you know, they're obnoxious. You know, through the whole thing, like that is their character trait. They're just obnoxious. Yeah, I, I mean, I would tend to agree with that. Uh, I find the characters here to be uh, all of them likable, actually. And uh, um, from watching this movie, uh, which you know I saw, you know years and years ago, I always uh, thought, oh, well, everybody seems to be having such a great time on this movie. Of course, um, you know, if you uh, read the book that the director had written and everything, you find out that that wasn't always the case on this one. Um, you know, not everybody was having a great time making this movie. Yeah, well, Rolf Konevsky, um, he, uh, he he created this movie, I guess, as a launching pad, you know, as Justin was saying, it, to get into, I guess, you know, bigger budget films. But, you know, he's still doing the same thing today. And, you know, I salute him for it. He's got like um, he's got like three post-production credits coming out, you know, uh, post-2019. Um, you know, he did uh, he did a recent film I watched on the Sci-Fi Channel, which was fairly interesting. It's called Party Bus to Hell. Has anyone seen that one? No. Oh. Yeah, it's it's actually pretty good. It's a it's it, it's it's the tone is a lot like this film, so I think you would enjoy it. I saw the. Have any, mm. Oh, go ahead, Justin. No, I was going to say. So I think it's a Black Room he did uh, last year, which um, I really enjoyed. Uh, I saw that on an airplane, actually, funny enough. But uh, that's um, yeah, it's fantastic. It's still still working because if you haven't read the book, um, I don't think it's in. I don't know if it ever was ever in print, was it? But there was an ebook because there certainly was a a website de- um, dedicated to this movie, which is now defunct. Um, but uh, it, it's um, hopefully it will come back online with the after the the Vinegar Syndrome release. Is um, but the ebook is kind of a blow by blow account of making this which is very entertaining uh and the director is very honest about uh how um you know how it was to make a low budget movie and all of the uh the trials and tribulations of it yeah i mean there's a scene with um nick and the rake which uh you know the the, the whole scene in the film is just he steps on a rake and it, it, it flies up and you know hits him uh and he had talked about how that took hours and hours and hours to film and get right. Just that one shot that's, you know, no more than a few seconds in the movie. Hmm. I don't Rolf blame Mike here. I would have ran too. <laughs> yeah. Rolf Konevsky also has done a lot of, um, Emmanuel movies. Um, I always salute people who do the, who are involved in the Emmanuel films. I, those are kind of guilty pleasures of mine. Have any of you seen the hazing that he made in the early 2000s? It's actually really good. If you like this movie, I think you'd like it. I happen to know. 
I think you'd like it because it's it's very much the same tone as this movie, and he plays with um, like a more tropes. Like on this time in the hazing, it's more like character tropes. I just interrupt. The, that guy with the red beret is about to take off his trousers, and he's wearing the most horrible pair of underpants. <laughs> that, that struck anybody when they were watching it during the week. Here we go. Um, they make me cringe. But they're oh. not. Well, yeah, no, they're more no. <laughs> isn't it a jock strap? It's a jock strap, it's isn't horrible. it? Yeah, I know. Yeah. But you, <laughs> did you know that um, the lead punk, which I presume is the guy in the in the the beret, or actually it may not be, but um, is somebody called Cyrus Voris, who uh, he actually went on to have quite a career as a writer, and he wrote um, uh, Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight, and he also came up the story for Kung Fu Panda, bizarrely. Well. And he is the writer for the upcoming Karate Kid 2. So there you go. I think all these kids are are in the wrong movie. What do you guys think? Supposed to be on Friday the 13th? The director said that the punks, because they don't really do anything in the movie, they um, the joke is that they've arrived into the wrong movie. They're meant to be in a slasher movie, and that's where they they travel onto it. <laughs> right. Uh, I think they were, in this in the proposed sequel, they do make a reappearance though. Oh, that would have been fun to see them again, <laughs> so, and then see them getting killed off. Maybe. What do you think about the uh, the There's nothing out there title. Um, a couple of other titles I'd read were. Uh, these are for like DVD releases in like Germany. Um, Don't scream, die, and then the bloody cottage in the forest. Uh, also, also known as scream or die. Uh, those are both German DVD DVD box releases. Um, I don't know. I kind of like that. There's nothing out there. It's just kind of to the point. Yeah. Yeah, I like that the best. I think because I mean, and, and I love that they mentioned that in the movie too. I love I love movies where random punks turn up. I mean, you have like uh, films like the uh, the Linda Blair grotesque, uh, where all the random punks uh, turn up, and uh, you, you just. I mean, this film is what I, I love about it, and what I think it works really, really well. Is around about this time you have films being made like Doom Asylum, which is another film that we've covered uh, on for its um, Blu-ray release, but. It's the tone is very different. It's it, it's almost more aggressive in its tone um, and more over the top, more John Waters esque, perhaps. Whereas this is it shows a like I say, I don't want to keep using the word, but like maturity to its approach. Uh, there's a kind of a subtlety to this movie, which is surprising given that it is uh, teenagers being chased by a giant frog with uh, with laser beams uh, shooting green laser beams out of his eyes. So it's. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, again, it, it gets everything right. And I think the tone, which is why um, I know the, the director was very, very frustrated with uh, the kind of, uh, you know, trying to get this movie to a wider audience. Because when it actually found an audience, when it was seen by an audience, uh, the audiences loved it. And you can see why, because the characters are immediately relatable and it's a lot of fun. Uh, but um, he sort of said that the frustration was actually making the movie was obviously an ordeal in some ways, and I'm sure we'll talk about that um, shortly, but uh, actually getting that movie, you know, he was really holding out to try and get the movie into cinemas rather than just straight to video, Uh, because one of the things in the book he discusses was that the death of horror, um, which obviously a slight overreaction wasn't the death of horror, but certainly when he was said that horror was, uh, was really, really... Uh, big in 1989 by the time the film came out in 91 the horror was was in his terms um how he terms it as dead um 
and interesting that kind of the, the example he uses of that he sort of says because uh, at the beginning of in the video store there's uh, you see the magazine slaughterhouse which is one of the many kind of um uh, kind of uh, expansions not expansions but um uh, rivals to fangoria that kind of came out around about the time like the the, the um ghoul zone and other the movies and i actually had i think they still have that magazine uh, the slaughterhouse magazine and uh, but he said by the time so when they went to production those the, all those magazines were out those loads of horror conventions and things but by 91 the all of those magazines had folded and only fangoria was the only kid left on the block so he was a kind of a victim um of that but uh so i think the the horror movies we talked about because it was kind of slow decline from the mid 80s through the late late 80s and of course it wasn't until 96 when wes craven and kevin williamson's scream came out that we actually saw a kind of a resurrection really in the horror movie uh which of course and again we'll talk about that is one of the re- you know obviously irked uh the director of this movie he did an interview for one of those magazines. Uh, they did an on-set piece for, uh, for uh, there's nothing out there. But uh, the magazine folded before they had a chance to uh, print the article. Uh, he also had a, a, lo- a New York-based TV station came to do a, a piece uh, behind the scenes, but they never aired it. So, I mean, he was, the stars just weren't aligning for him in terms of getting you know, word of mouth out there about the movie. A lot of times, um, us as a group uh, collectively, we'll try to de- try to determine when exactly a film was, um, I guess, made or filmed. Um, I, th- I don't think the '89 is out of question here, with all the uh, the overabundance of uh, uh, the horizontal striped shirts, the polos. Yes, and I the still have some of those. <laughs> <laughs> so do I. <laughs> Doreen as well is very kind of 1989, I think. Oh, Doreen is fantastic. She's one of my favorite characters in this movie. I find her to be a lot of fun, even when she's possessed. Spoiler alert. She has a tendency to lose her head at times, though. Yeah, yeah. That's unfortunate. Mm. So we know know Justin is a, uh, there's nothing out there virgin, as it were. Um, What was the first time you saw this, uh, Nathan? Oh, I got a big story for that. Um, incidentally, in the book, uh, in this hallway scene, um, the uh, wall that the pictures hang on is actually all hand built. It was actually a very open space, but they made it into a hallway for this scare scene, and probably for other scenes in the movie. Um, way back when, uh, before the internet, uh, all I had was a big like uh, movie books. Um, I had the golden movie retriever. And stuff like that, and it meant it, you know it had this in it an article about it, and it mentioned you know like a group of and back then and even now it's like if you tell me a group of teens getting killed one by one, uh, you know it was like a mosquito drawn to you know a, a light or something. Um, so I went on a quest to try to find it, but without the internet at the time, it was very difficult. So finally, I found it in a few towns over because I used to scour video stores across the counties that were near me. And I finally found this one and I got a membership at that video store and rented it. It was like 45 minutes away from my house, but I drove it just so I could watch this movie. And I don't regret it because I loved it. I thought it was so much fun and I tried to get them to sell me the VHS, but they wouldn't. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how it all panned out for me. I just found it in a few counties away from me. In a video yeah, Eric, 
Eric, you're, were you a virgin to this movie or had you seen it before? No, I'd never seen it before until this time last week. So, <clears throat> Yeah, um, I guess it's around 96. The internet wasn't, you know, this huge thing that it is today. It was just kind of new. But there were, you know, um, you know, news groups, Usenet news groups. Uh, and someone, I was, uh, this is right around the time the Scream boom was uh, still very popular. I think they were just, just released Scream 2 and... Uh, um, I was on uh, alt horror or something like that, and someone had mentioned this was a lot like screaming. I'd never heard of it, so um, you know, I went scouring like Nathan, but I could not find it anywhere. Uh, finally, I one of the members on there is like, you know, dude, I have a um, you know a VHS copy. If you want me to, you know, copy you off a uh, uh, you know you know make you a copy. So I you know I watched it, but the, the tape I watched was like an nth generation, just this horrible dub you couldn't see. So. Uh, I was kind of underwhelmed, and I saw it about five years later um, when the internet was, uh, you know, things were a little more easily accessible online, as it were. Um, but yeah, it's, I'm a little late to the movie. Um, you know, about 15 years past its, uh, you know, creation date. But I, I really enjoyed it when I finally got to see an actual clear copy of this. And this version um, that Vinegar Syndrome is putting out looks great, by the way. Oh, yes, because I was used to seeing the VHS, so I agree. Yeah, I think if it had got some coverage in maybe Fangoria or something, it, it, like the film wasn't in my consciousness um, when the DVD boom started. So even when it got that release in 1999, 2000, I, um, it just sort of passed me by because I'd never heard of it. Uh, it's only through yourself, Nathan and Joseph that uh, it sort of, you know, uh, you know, appeared in my periphery of vision as such. Yeah, when I was searching for this movie, um, you know, I was I was reading all kinds of magazines like Fango or Starlog or um, whatever you call them. Um, I don't really recall anything uh, like any kind of articles on this movie in any of the bigger magazines. But I do remember it like getting a one off mention. So that kind of drove me, you know, further to see the film. Whenever I, I, see- I believe I believe it was like Fango or something like someone said it, it reminds me a lot of uh, there's nothing out there. So I was like, oh, I guess it does exist. Whenever I see the green slime here, it, it just brings back memories of Troll Two, which would have been <laughs> around the same time. <laughs> those are some uh, those are some good memories. Yeah. <laughs> I probably wouldn't be hungry anymore. No. You know. Oh, there's that famous jar of uh, M and M's. Oh yes. Which had to be full, and people kept eating them. So they had to spray them with um, some kind of toxic. Um, cleaner substance to stop people from nibbling on them. <laughs> I, I can imagine how the frustration of the director wanting it to be full for the big scene where it gets smashed and uh, walking by and seeing it lower and lower. As the resident fatty on the podcast, I don't think any amount of, um, you know, um, furniture polish would stop me from eating a jar of M&Ms. You would still eat them? I think I probably would if I was hungry enough. Or if it was full of Kit Kats. Yeah. Kit Kats cleaner on it. One thing I just want to mention just off, um, just while it occurs to me was, uh, although this film and the, the book obviously makes, um, a lot of reference to, to scream and we might as well just sort of mention, uh, that now that when a director, uh, when scream came out, cause I think in the book he says that he gave Wes Craven's son a copy of the movie, 
when uh, Wes Craven's son was making a, a film himself. So, but of course, Wes Craven didn't write Scream. Kevin Williamson wrote Scream, but. Um, uh, I think when he saw uh, Scream, he eventually, you know, he thought, well, actually, it was a very well-made movie. And um, but the, certainly, the character of Randy in Scream was very much like the character um, here, who's you know the the wisecrack, well, wisecracking of kind of the doomsaying uh, yeah. um, sort it's of Mike, horror, you know, Mike, yeah, say so, um, that they're all going to die and everything like that, like that. So very much um, based on on horror movies. But there's the, the other movie as well, of course, it's Dominic Brasquier's uh, Evil Laugh from. 1986, which kind of does a similar thing, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, with Barney. Yeah. So pre this, so I never really see that mentioned. And I'm not to say I'm not trying to get into sort of lots of degrees of separation or saying that um, Rolf, uh, you know, ripped that film off by any stretch. But certainly, um, you know, the uh, if if there, you could argue that Evil Laugh was the kind of first kind of postmodern. Uh, slasher movie horror movie uh, which did some similar things to to this movie and then of course it evolved into scream and um, but you could see why it would irk uh, the director of this movie that scream was lauded as being and i think that's the thing that kind of irked him most was it's lauded as being this incredibly original idea as if it was completely reinvented the horror movie um, but in fact, actually, smaller movies, uh, less seen movies, had been doing that already. Uh, in the case of Evil Laugh, and there's there's nothing out there. Um, I mean, the, the the you know the director's recollections are you know fascinating for anyone who wanted to get into making film. I'm sure it's, it's kind of similar things. Uh, you know, happening now, and he's sort of saying how he really, really wanted to hold out for um, uh, a theatrical release because uh, video release was, um, they hadn't made any money on it. And I think all the money had been put up mostly by his parents uh, and, you know, other people. And I think he's, uh, the budget was something like three hundred, three hundred fifty thousand dollars $350,000, which I think he says was went up to about 800000 when everything was accounted for. Um, but to actually make money, he didn't want to dump it on, as he had seen at the time, dumping it onto video. Um, but uh, trying to get it into cinemas, he said he just kind of found it really, really difficult. And even, uh, you know, it's a story of him saying that he he screened it for um, uh, Robert Zemeckis, didn't he, when he was making his Tales from the Crypt uh, TV series. Um, and it did get, it got a release, didn't it, in New York um, at a cinema that was kind of, is it 8th Street or whatever, the cinema that was kind of famous showing Rocky Horror Picture Show at midnight. And he said that was kind of scuppered by uh, really bad um, snowstorms. And then, uh, you know, it was almost like the whole production was cursed in some ways that when it was released in uh, Los Angeles, at uh, a cinema and he said it was starting to build up a uh, kind of you know people coming to watch it because i think again he got midnight screenings there uh, and word of mouth was getting out there and then the la riots happened in 92 and uh, there was a curfew for no, no one was allowed down the streets after 10 p.m which has effectively kind of uh, cut short that any success there so so um but it was uh, interesting that the he's i think he was sort of saying that critics some of the critics loved the movie like janet maslin um, from uh, New York Times said it was kind of immature, but I think she quite, quite liked the movie. Um, but there's also some, he sort of said he was made fun of by, um, uh, is it New York Daily News or something? They did a kind of piss take um, interview with him. and um, But he said in LA, the, the critics really loved it. Uh, so it was kind of very frustrating for him, and especially at his kind of young age. But having said that, he's made a, you know, a pretty good career, um, you know, off the back of this movie. So, um you know, so that that's all credit to to him, and obviously he still 
presumably loves this movie uh, and is very fond of it. I haven't seen um, I haven't seen Evil Laugh in a long time, but uh, you know that old saying, um, "Show don't tell." In in films, hmm. you know what I'm talking about. Hmm. Well, basically, they, you know, people want you to show them stuff on screen rather than tell. And I think what Evil Laugh and certainly Screen does, they do a lot of kind of uh, the whole. They do the whole meta th- the meta thing, but they do it in kind of like dialogue or puns. And I, I like. There's nothing out there. It, it does a lot of visual gags. Like um, the the alien ripping off the girl's underwear earlier, it's just you know screams cliche, and then you know coming up a little later, they get that awesome scene with um, uh, Mike uh, swinging across a boom mic to get to safety. Um, it really reminds me of something like Airplane with the with the visual gags where you actually get to see, um, you know, this stuff played out on screen. Whereas you know, in the other films, they they more or less just kind of talked about kind of the cliches. Uh, or here, you actually get to see them, and then I think it's uh, it's you know very very clever, very very well done. Hmm. What I like about that, um, boom mic scene is that they don't they, they don't reference it afterwards, and there's no follow through on the yeah. On, I think that makes it even more um, fun. Is yeah, that that's the, that's yeah. that is that is a very clever writing because any other movie you'd say you know Mike would sw- uh, swing across this boom mic, and a character would be like, "What was that?" He's oh, it was the boom mic. Yeah, yeah, they don't say a word about it, and I think that's you know it's the gag is all the better for it. Uh, Justin, you were saying that the uh, that his his dad was one of the uh, producers on the film. Victor, um, he was actually a film editor. He worked on um, he worked on some big well, sorry, some big cult movies. I should say rather than big movies in the seventies. He was the editor on Ganja and Hess and uh, Blood Sucking Freaks and Bloodbath, not the uh, Mario Bava one. Um, so he went on actually he did the editing on on this film as well. So he had. Um, I suppose he had some built-in um, technical assistance, I suppose, from the start. Hmm. Uh, although, I mean, he had no um, financial assistance, I should say, either. So he had to do it all on his own that way. But Well, Justin, didn't you say that, um, I, and I'd read this elsewhere, I don't know if you mentioned it or not, but apparently he got a lot of the budget from this film uh, because his parents remortgaged their house at one point. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, well, they had to stump up the money for like the advertising budget in New York, I think, and uh, uh, saying that he he sort of said to get out, to actually sort of put a advert in something like uh, you know in a major newspaper in New York would have cost the same as the whole budget for the movie. So again, it was kind of quite tricky because the easiest route for them would have been just to put it out on video and sort of made um, you know made some money that way. But you know he wanted to get it into cinemas because I think it was that it was a case of him uh, you know coming to coming too soon sounds awful. But you know he kind of his the whole idea was <laughs> it was too soon um, because he said the 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 people um, the audiences seemed to connect with it. The critics seemed to like it, but the people who the money men for want a better term didn't really understand what this movie was trying to do, whether or not it was trying to be a comedy or horror movie. And um, as he says himself, there were lots of, you know, there were, we've talked about this, um, you know, there, there was lots of spoofs of the slash movie and the horror movie, certainly in the early 80s after the slash movie boom with Student Bodies and Pandemonium and Wacko and Saturday the 14th. Um, but those were very much, um, I kind of guess they were very much, uh, they weren't trying to be horror movies. They were kind of really more like airplane style spoofs. Whereas this uh, and Scream especially, uh, and Evil Laugh for that matter, um, are also working as horror movies as well as comedies. So they can be, although this film is more explicitly a kind of comedy more so than I would say Scream is because Scream works 
um as both a comedy and a horror movie but certainly it works possibly i would say it actually managed to be scary which i you couldn't really say say a film like this is is scary and another film i'd kind of compare this to perhaps with a whole slapstick humor would be like the evil dead um certainly that that kind of three stooges style thing which obviously sam raimi loved uh and um given that uh, the director said that he wanted to be a clown when he was growing up it, it's that kind of humor that kind of slapstick kind of humor and certainly um scream and also for that matter i don't think evil laugh break the fourth wall do they with the the uh, you know the boom mic and things like that so so um so i think the money men found it difficult to try and work out exactly what this movie was trying to be um and so they couldn't really see the vision for it and how to distribute it and i think that was you know the the problem so really uh, it, it was a film that was made you know too early for its own good in some ways um uh and it's kind of i see kind of a kind of the kind of cyclical nature of things it's like when um scream was so successful partly because it appealed to the people like us who grew up with slash movies in the 1980s but also the kind of the younger audience who'd never really seen slash movies so you had like younger audience watching young people uh on screen and also the people who loved slash movies growing up uh who were older um and so you had this kind of built an audience and the timing was was perfect for that that kind of that worked whereas something like scream 4 when that came out it it missed the boat because it was the it was released at the wrong time and it didn't find an audience so it's very much really around um you know actually pitching when you know actually uh, trapping lightning in a bottle and certainly when he was saying the director was saying about how difficult it was to you know he made this movie presumably for financial reasons i.e to break into the movie industry because the horror was hot in 1989 and by the time the film came out it was it was a more or less dead genre so um but having said that, you know, it's a film that, um, you know, found its audience uh, when it played on, you know, it did get a release on uh, on video and played cable. And it said it had a film a, a bit like, um, uh, you know, someone, a film like Sleepaway Camp, which kind of built, had its kind of cult audience um, from the start. And it kind of built that over time. So it's a film that built its reputation by playing on um, on late night cable TV. Uh, so and um, you know not many not many films actually you know actually get their own websites where fans create a website for them so a lot there's a lot of love for this movie and it's you know it's easy to see why um, I like that they break the fourth wall in this movie mm, no, I, I mean there's the scene yeah. where she's taking her clothes off and he's uh, her boyfriend's watching her and um, she's like telling him he needs to get started and he's like well I'm enjoying the view and she says yeah you and everybody else so now you had I'm compared like, this, yeah. You had compared this to um, Evil Dead, and there's a lot of swooping uh, camera angles, uh, you know, that are kind of you know evocative of Evil Dead, you know, in that style. The cinematographer here, um, Ed Hirschberger, he didn't really do a whole lot, but he did. He was um, the camera operator on The Prowler and uh, Sisters from 1972, I believe it was. Okay. Yeah. Well, I can see. I can see that. I mean, I, I know the director said that he, as I said before, he wasn't a fan of horror movies growing up. So, um, but certainly he wouldn't be the kind of the first um, uh, director uh, making you know a slasher movie where he um, uh, you know sort of uh, wasn't a fan of the things. I mean, it reminds me of a film like Graduation Day with Herb Freed, who who wasn't a um, horror movie fan and him and his wife went and saw loads of horror movies and you know they we talked about this before but um, uh, famously uh, sort of actually timed the death scenes on horror movies stopwatch to sort of see if there's a formula for this and I 
know the director of this film said that he rented out loads of tapes and um, you know started watching them and looking at the conventions of the horror movie and the tropes and that's what he was making fun of but having said that which i think is a testament to his his skill with this is that although he wasn't a fan of horror movies he actually comes at it from quite an affectionate place he's not he's not treating it with disdain or laughing at he's he's not he's not laughing at the horror movie uh tropes and cliches he's kind of laughing with them i kind of guess in a more like an affectionate way which is in the same way scream did and of course evil laughed it as well they're not the films that that laugh at they're not they're not unkind to the genre um they're sympathetic and inviting fans of the genre to enjoy um you know the spoofing and the uh you know turning things on their head you know mark culver and uh wendy uh bednars here who plays uh, jim and doreen you know they had their skinny dipping scene earlier and I don't know if you guys saw it, but there's like a behind the scenes featurette and it is absolutely hysterical because it's where they're rehearsing this in the daytime and they don't notice that there's a dog dog paddling behind them. It's the owner of the house's dog <laughs> and it likes to swim in that pond. And then she turns around uh, during the rehearsal and just happens to see this dog like right behind her. And she lets out a scream that's a real scream. It's absolutely hysterical if you guys haven't seen it. Well, I thought it was interesting that um, uh, Wendy um, uh, Bednars, who plays obviously plays Doreen, and in the scenes where she um, she uh, reportedly uh, regretted making this movie because of the um, uh, the nudity that was involved in in this. Uh, and I think um, sort of I sort of read an interview with with her that she said that she kind of was um, had a sleazy casting agent who sent her for the role and she was kind of desperate to get into film. Uh, and um, but she didn't, you know, she regret like many possibly many actresses and uh, possibly actors as as well in horror low budget horror slasher movies in the eighties, who um, who's new to you know use of nudity has kind of come back to bite them, literally on the backside. Um, uh, someone like you know Debbie Sue Voorhees from uh, Friday Thirteenth Part Five, and she you know she got in trouble as a teacher when kids were starting to show clips of her nude scenes from that movie. So. But again, I think she's come round to actually kind of laughing at this a, a, a bit herself. Um, I think she kind of regretted playing the kind of the Dixie Bimbo, although I think she's really good in it. In it. Yes. And, the, and the fact is, it is not, it's again, it's not being unkind to her character, is it? Her character is a kind of Dixie bim, Blonde Bimbo, but it, she's, it, it treats her with um, uh, a kind of sympathy, doesn't it? It treats her as a sympathetic character. Um, she's not the punchline of every joke is she by any means i love her I whole say, thing about the bears though what about the <laughs> bears i always say just throw those puritanical uh you know thought processes out of your head um you may have been naked in a film but you're actually adding to the zeitgeist you're you're you know you're adding to the the, the cliches you're you're um you're giving us something to talk about many years later and um we we thank you for that Absolutely, it's not just yeah. a, it's not just a sexual thing. I mean, you're you're adding something. You're adding an element to this film that we love. So, thank you. Absolutely. Well, I think so she's extended fight sequence. By the way, it reminds yeah. me of um, Keith David and Roddy Piper in They Live. Just the, the fact <laughs> that going, yeah. going. Well, didn't they go to a gym or somewhere and have to practice this fight scene? It yeah, was quite tightly choreographed, wasn't it? And he says it's inspired by the the Pink Panther movies, the sort of Cato against uh, Cluso um, elaborate, you know, fight sequences in the, those movies. 
I love that they're able to convince it was just the cat. I mean, the thing actually grabs her leg. I know. I I don't think a cat did that. (laughs) Maybe she just hit her head and was dazed. When they go down to the basement, I always get a vibe of the deadly spawn from from this film. Um, Oh, yes. And it's it's another sort of um, very low-budget creature feature from the 80s. And I think that the deadly spawn was filmed over the course of a couple of years, which uh, even had a longer gestation period than this one. No, that's a movie. Um, the Deadly Spawn is a movie that does a, a very good job, you know, as this film does a very good job, you know, kind of painting the um, the teenagers as likable. The The Deadly Spawn does a very good job of painting the a kid as likable. And typically in, in films, I don't really like kid mm-hmm. uh, characters, or especially if they're the main characters. But, uh, yeah, they do a really good job there, just as they do, you know, a good job here of making everyone, you know, likable, despite the, um, you know, some of their less tangible quirks, I guess. Hmm. I like this part because he's like, the cat falls down and he says what a lot of people think and who's watching these movies. Where did the cat come from? (laughs) There's nothing up there but ceiling. The the cat's real name is Peter, which I think is a great name for a cat. I I love to pet that cat. Yeah. Of course, you know another movie, another movie that did so, um, a similar uh, conceit to this um, fairly recently was the Cabin in the Woods, where um, you know the characters are basically living inside this uh, horror film scenario, kind of put on uh, by the, uh, by this kind of shadowy underground. I guess you call it a cult or a business. I don't know, but uh, this movie reminds uh, Cabin in the Woods reminded me a lot of There's Nothing Out There with a, you know, some of the cliches that they don't talk about, but you have the one character who is like pointing them out like, uh, mm-hmm. guys, shouldn't this not happen? <laughs> but yeah, they're uh, they're very similar. It stinks for Mike here to be locked in the basement all night long. I mean, he got to contend with that thing all by himself. Yeah, they're not the best of friends now, are they? <laughs> well, I think his friend Nick there didn't want to lock him in there, but at this point in time, they kind of just think Mike is being unbelievably obnoxious, and you know, they just don't want to deal with that. But he's trying to save them. It's interesting. Well, just talking about um, the uh, let's talk about the cast and crew, sort of, uh, sort of quickly about some of you know as we go through. But um, uh, James Hensbeach, he he was um, playing Mike. I mean, he I, I think does an incredibly good job considering that he was a last minute replacement, wasn't he, for another actor? Who? What is, I mean, in his name, Craig Peck. Who? That plays Mike. Yeah, oh, Craig Peck. Oh, sorry, I've got it written down wrong. So does ignore me but um <laughs> <laughs> right craig peck then um he was um but he was a last minute replacement wasn't he for um for mike for the character yeah he was yeah yeah i mean he sort of said that uh it, from what i read was that he he um uh the, the character or the, the actor dropped out because of all the nudity and violence in the movie even though uh, actually the character mike doesn't get nude at all uh, which is a, kind of a strange thing, isn't it? I kind of guess, but uh, um, but yeah, he does a, he does a great job at that character as that character, really, considering that um, you know he was he was a childhood friend, I think, of the director, um, and uh, it's a shame he didn't actually go on to do a bit more. Yeah, I think he's great in this movie. Uh, I think he does a a, a good job of uh, remaining likable, even uh, in circumstances where. Um, 
for most people there uh, that were that would be there with him would probably not find him to be as likable. I think a lot the, of them uh, are annoyed by him. It seems. Yeah, I think the screenplay is very accomplished. I mean, it was written when he was eighteen years old. I mean, when I was eighteen years old, you know, I was just trying to get out of high school. Um, so, I mean, you know, this is very well done stuff. I love this house. It is. It's very unusual, isn't it? Yeah. It's a bright new day. That means no more alien monsters. This guy who plays Nick always reminds me of a very, very young um, Roddy McDowell. The guy who plays Nick, uh, John Carhart III, was in a John Waters movie. He was. In Hairspray, one of the dancers. And he Which still would have been just here before he made this, yeah. Yeah, he's still acting today, isn't he? He was. Um, I don't. Think he's done a huge amount, but he's in. I I saw he's accredited as um, in a short film called Rubberneck that was released this year. Oh, no, I did not know that. I mean, should we talk about the elephant in the room, as it were? Uh, I was wondering <laughs> if we were going to get to that or not. <laughs> well, before you do that. Um, I, the Nick character, uh, uh, John Carhartt, he was, I, did, did you mention that he was a uncredited dancer in Hairspray? Yeah, I John just Waters mentioned said. it. Oh, okay, yeah, I must have missed that, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was too busy paying attention to what was on the screen. Uh, Bite me. Okay. Uh, Ooh. <laughs> like the alien. Exterior continues. <laughs> yeah. I'll spray shaving cream in your mouth. How about that? <laughs> mm, mm. It'd be like the stuff. I'll I'll. Smear my another film. This, this oh. kind of reminds me of the stuff. There you go. Mm. There we go. I hate to be that guy, but earlier we mentioned Mike swinging on a boom mic pole. Actually, Nick is the one that does that. I noticed that too. I didn't want to say anything. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't going to, but um, I, I, it, it's looming over my head. I have to say something. Yeah, yeah. I made a made a faux pas. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, okay, Mike is in the morning here. Give me a break. <laughs> yeah. The elephant in the room, Justin, go for it. Well, is Stacey's Bonnie Bowers, which um, is, uh, I've always, when I I started writing for Hysteria Lives, when I started my website, one of the things I always, I'd much rather look into the background of um, unsung kind of movies rather than, excuse me, regurgitate everything about Friday 13th and um, Halloween over and over again. So, I love the stories about the making of the movies and there's so many, you know, you, you just know this, uh, actually what happens behind the screens sometimes can be, um, behind the scenes, sorry, but it can be more interesting than what actually happens on the screen. Um, although of course this is a great movie and actually watching this, you would think everyone got on really, really well. And all we're doing really, we're going to say is kind of not regurgitating, but sort of recounting the, um, what the director and some of the cast and crew have said. And, I think um, is uh, Bonnie Bowers who plays Stacy, who essentially is, I, well, is the um, essentially the fi- film's final girl, and I think she has a interesting character arc because she goes from this rather, um, you know, sort of nondescript kind of character who dismisses everything as just you know ridiculous, and she's annoyed by uh, the the Mike character. Uh, she goes and what the director termed as really the film Sigourney Weaver. Um, but I think from what sounds like there was kind of miscommunication that when she turned up on the set that she was expecting the film to be, you know, to have her own trailer and to be um, uh, sort of, you know, it to be a much more glamorous 
uh, process making a movie and of clearly it, it wasn't for her so I think there were kind of quite a few uh, there was quite a lot of falling out um, with other uh, with the other cast who um, said that she was a little bit sort of stuck up and now obviously we weren't on the set so we don't know we don't know what her side of the story was but um, but I, I it's it's a, not a shame I mean, it's always interesting in those stories but I actually I like her in this movie I think she's she's actually quite a, you know you know a fun character um, yeah um, apparently this was her only uh, film role she mm-hmm. went on to be a musician and mm-hmm. she had some success there well, yeah, I was, she's a bass player. Mm. Yeah, I was. Yeah, she's a bass player now. And I was reading that she was like a bikini model, which is kind of why she was chosen for this this movie. And there's the the sex scene, which I'm not sure if we've it's it's been and gone, hasn't it? Where she's kind of uh, nude on the bed, and she kicked up a fuss about that. Which, to be honest, you can probably see her point of view. Really, she's sort of thinking, well, why am I nude and the actor's not nude? Um, and in the end, actually, if you notice, you actually the actor um, Nick uh, John Carhart um, the third is is actually nude by the end of it. He takes his uh, underpants off, so there's some equality there, I kind of guess. But um, later in the movie, and we'll, we'll maybe talk about that when we get to it, is that uh, th- there was a, a big standoff about slippers and getting hair wet and stuff in the in the uh, the big car crash scene into the lake a little bit further on. Um, oh, that apparently was the biggest fight. Yeah, was the car crash scene. But but I know the uh, the guy who played Mike when he was interviewed. He was, he had a massive row with her on set, didn't he? Um, but I know the um, the the, uh, the director apparently kind of I'd, he kind of he was known as being a really nice guy on set. So maybe he wasn't able to control it. I don't I don't know. I mean, he say he was only twenty years old, but. Um, Apparently he used to go around and he was really concerned that people were having fun. He wanted people to have fun on the set. So one thing that actually stood out to me, which I thought was quite funny, it's kind of is that clearly the um it's it's the the creature effects are sort of um their tentacles are somebody's uh, like uh, pantyhose painted green, aren't they, with their hands. It's a bit like a sock puppet, literally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Justin, you were Justin, you'd mentioned um, you know, the the tone on the set. Um, I agree. With him, I think um, you know these low-budget films. It, it's good to have. Um, I think it's good. It, it, it's a good thing to have a, a fun time on set because you don't. I mean, you, you. It's it's really hard to explain. Like I could understand it in these big Hollywood budget movies. You'd want like a a director who would kind of you know rule the the cast with an iron fist. You know to get the job done because they're spending a lot of money here. I mean, you're not really spending a lot of money. You might as well just kind of go in it with all your uh, you know just just with a lot of bravado and just, just, you know, open up and have fun. I was reading an interview with um, one of these indie directors and they were talking about how, you know, when, when, when everyone's on set in their movie, you know, it's, um, it's time to work, uh, no smiling, no having fun, just do your job. And I'm like, that's not, that's no way to make an indie film. You, you need to kind of cut loose on, you know, films like this. This is the slipper scene, Justin. Uh, yes. Is it a slipper scene? Okay. Do you want yeah, to, one of the slippers came off? Yeah, do you want to and mention that for for the, the, the uninitiated, what the slipper story is? Uh, <laughs> and it's no Cinderella story. So, yes, uh, from, uh, you know, what's been written up by the director about the film, he had mentioned that uh, Bonnie had, uh, of course, she had to be in the water, and she, you know, wanted to wear these, like, slippers on her feet, which, according to him, it's fine, because, I mean, he would just film her, you know, upper body, so, I mean, it, you know, he didn't have to film her feet, but as she was in the water, one of her slippers came off and she yelled cut. 
uh, which I, you know, it's just one of those things I don't think you, you should do. Um, no. just let the director yell cut, but she said, I lost one of my slippers and he's like, well, can you reach down and grab it? And she said, well, that's not my job. So then they spent hours diving into this water, trying to find it. <laughs> yeah. I can understand some frustration, you know, uh, uh, there. I mean, it sounds like it was just a lot of frustration on both sides. I mean, she obviously didn't want to be there. They couldn't afford to replace her and she was under contract. They didn't, I mean, they probably didn't want her there necessarily. She didn't want to be there, but you had to on both sides, hmm. unfortunately. <laughs> Because I was reading that she was trying to, she'd employed a lawyer and all sorts of things to try and get her out of the role. But I mean, yeah, if she just didn't work, yeah. But if she'd walked, if she'd had left, uh, they probably wouldn't have. Uh, the whole film would have had to been abandoned, wouldn't it? Because at yeah. least with yeah, the for guy, someone, hmm. for someone who apparently did not want to be there, she does a really good job of making you believe that she was having fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I like her character in this movie. Um, like Justin was saying, I like her character a lot. So. Um, you know, I, I mean, and, and it doesn't come across to me on screen that she doesn't, that she's not wanting to be there at all. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's kind of like, I mean, like you've made, I mean, uh, you know, Joseph and Nathan, you've made movies. And I mean, uh, I mean, one of the things, criticism, not criticisms, but people say when they're making um, even big budget movies, you know, or low budget movies is, is a lot of it is sitting around and waiting and waiting and boredom punctuated oh, by yes. um, sort of sudden adrenaline rushes. So, you know, when you're actually acting or, or, or being working all nights and being exhausted, because certainly many horror movies and slasher movies kind of, you know, majority of them are sort of, you know, usually filmed at night or, you know, if not day for night, but uh, so you can see why people get ratty with each other on, on sets uh, because it is a kind of a high stress, uh, environment in a, in you know probably a lot of times um, and uh, long stretches of boredom so you can see why people fall out and again you're thrown together with people you've never met before uh, and then you've got to create kind of chemistry uh, between you so so it's all we see is on the screen but what we see on the screen I think is um, you know she's really good one thing I did want to point out actually very quickly was that that gore effect of their face um, face melting I thought was actually pretty well done wasn't it it was pretty gooey and disgusting I love those oh, yeah. guys. So it reminds me like of Dr. Fibes or something like that. Mm. Yeah, Justin, that's another reason um, I think you should have fun on the set of these films, these lower budget films. I mean, because, you know, the money, um, money can erase, uh, you know, sour expressions. But when you don't have a lot of money to spend, you want the, you want your, you know, your actors to have fun because you can kind of mine um, things from, you know, their uh, their behavior. Like when Nathan and I did um, a movie we did back in 2014. Uh, which I will not name. Um, oh, you know, we encourage people just to have fun because, you know, we didn't have any money to spend. We couldn't erase any kind of uh, mistakes like that. So, you know, if people are having fun, we could say, hey, you know, this scene's not working, but look what this person's doing. I think it really adds, um, you know, it really gives people who don't have a lot of money some, a little extra to work with, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Well, I'm very sympathetic to the director because, um, I mean, even though we didn't have any, you know, diva type personalities in the movie we made, I mean, it's still really hard to deal with, with actors and scheduling and all that stuff. It is really difficult. So if we had, if we had like a diva type personality on the set, it would have been a nightmare. Just as an aside, um, it's, it's especially difficult to deal with, um, actors who are, uh, obsessed with football. I'll just leave it at that. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Don't film a movie during football season in the South. 
Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you one, this would make a great double bill uh, with Graydon Clark's uh, The Uninvited, the Killer Cat on a Yacht movie. Oh, I love that movie. That would be a great double bill, wouldn't it? Mm. The creature in this, actually, another thing it reminds me of is, of course, I suppose, Belial from uh, Basket Case. Mm. It has that kind of um, blob with arms. And it's also the lo-fi special effects, I suppose, would nicely to Basket Case. It always kind of looked like the uh, like a, a, a bigger version of the um, of the things that uh, the creature throws and um, without warning, it looks like a, a life size version of those little uh, discs, those little alien discs. Hmm. Well, it's also kind of taking its inspiration, isn't it? I kind of guess from those kind of nineteen so the kind of Skid Row sci-fi monster movies from the nineteen fifties. Uh, you know, like the army versus night monsters, the Mammy Van Doren movie with the, you know, the shambling trees and all of those kind of uh, movies that were kind of probably taken off from the success of the giant ant movie, them, um, where you had, uh, you know, quite sort of cheap looking monsters. Um, uh, so before, you know, you actually practical special effects got um, much better in the sort of seventies and eighties. So it's that kind of take there. And I, I mean, given, I think if it was a, um, uh, you know, if it wasn't a sock puppet and a uh, papier-mâché kind of giant frog head, I think it would lose some of its charm. If you actually had a really believable-looking monster on there, I think it probably would, you know, it it wouldn't work as well. So I think, again, it's very knowing, isn't it? So it'd be the yeah, same a- uninvited as well. The uninvited wouldn't be half as much fun if it was a realistic um, killer cat on the yacht. <laughs> there's, a, <No. clears throat> there's a movie with a... John Goodman, um, I think it's called Matinee. It, it, it pays tribute to a lot of these types of movies. But this is this is the type of movie that you would see screened in that movie. It's about a you know a theater mogul who basically has this all night marathon of stuff like uh, you know them with the giant ants and the tingler that you know the seats vibrate. I think this is the type of movie that would fit in with that kind of uh, marathon. You know, they they would introduce like you know touchovision vision or something where every time the aliens on screen you feel something slither against your leg. I can see that um, being the case if this were screened at some kind of like a marathon movie thing venture like that. It would fit in there. Maybe it could be shavo vision. Yeah, or slime. Yeah. <laughs> slime. You get slimed yeah. or, or shaving cream thrown on you, or something. Yeah. First years and they land right in front of you, like just about now. Yeah, I love yeah. this. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, you trying to kill me? <laughs> oh god! My, one of my favorite scenes is coming up. The big fight scene. Let me just say, when that scene comes, Stacy here is one of the toughest characters I've ever seen in my life. It's very dynasty, isn't it? It's like John. Yes. It's like Crystal and Alexis going That's, at it. Yeah. <laughs> See, and here Mike's, uh, you know, not going to go help them, which in a way I think most people might think it makes him a coward. But I think for him, he's like, I've seen enough of these movies. This is not going to work. We're just going to end up dead if we go down there. He shows up at the last minute to help, though. So, there you go. By the They're way, good friends. Yeah, Doreen is wearing a Michigan. This is one of the things I uh, read about the directory. Said that Doreen is wearing a Michigan uh, T-shirt in honor of Sam Raimi, who, of course, is a resident of Michigan. There's this little nod to Evil Dead. Ah. ah. And also, wasn't this this was shot uh, just down the road from the locations where the first two Friday Thirteenth movies were shot? 
Oh, right. Okay. Apparently. Because I also, I'd noticed a kind of bit of a nod to Friday the 13th Part 3 um, near the beginning when they're driving up and then they see the uh, the kind of the ambulance and them looking for uh, the girl from the, the prologue. It kind of, yeah. it's it very much yeah. felt like that scene where you've got Dan the Kimmel and crew going past the um, the store where the murders have just taken place and sort of rubbernecking. Well, they're more than rubbernecking. She's like horizontal outside the driver's seat <laughs> window, looking looking backwards. Um, I got that vibe as well, but more with the um, with the gang of punks that show up to go skinny. Yeah, mm. that's yeah. what they were looking for. The filming locations for part one and two. You know, they were uh, that's what they were looking for. Camp by the lake. That one. Oh God, Just here we come. This is where we find out that uh, Stacy is the strongest character in the movie because not many people could take a baseball bat directly to the face and, you know, and not even really phase them. I mean, look at this. Bam. And she's fine. She's totally fine. Justin, I, I believe it was you or maybe Nathan. I don't know. But, but we've always mentioned in, you know, our other commentaries or on the show we do um, basically like actually you know what nathan you got me watching this baseball bat scene i've lost my complete train of thought sorry <laughs> I it's, it, you gotta admit though it's a great <laughs> scene to make you lose your train of thought i mean it's that good yeah i'm and sure it'll pop back imagination, up but is dorian's hair getting bigger in true uh, slash 80s I, I, it should be <laughs> if it's not because yeah that's what makes somebody crazy yeah, the big hair. Well, he's talking about the baseball, uh, baseball bat to the face, and I think it's actually, um, I think final girls in slash and horror movies do have kind of supernatural powers not to get their their face mashed up. Because I noticed in the new Halloween movie where Jamie Lee Curtis is repeatedly um, uh, punched into the, her front door by Michael Myers about five or six times that uh, she doesn't even have a scratch on her face afterwards. So, so I think uh, final girls have some very very good makeup. Mm. Yeah, what I was going to mention, what I was going to mention, I remember now is, um, I think Justin, you were a proponent of saying this a lot on earlier stuff we've done, but this film would not work today with you know the advent of cell phones. This this film especially, I don't think would work. Hmm. I think they would have to say that nobody has reception or something. That's really the only yeah. way. I mean, you can't that. you can't really get away with doing stuff like this anymore with a uh, technology. It's it's hard. Although you could, in theory, be in the middle of somewhere, uh, in the middle of nowhere, aren't they? And you know, you d- they do get away with that sometimes, for saying there's no cell reception. But yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, in, in a film like this, I guess you could have someone like Mike, you know, try to use a cell phone and it doesn't work, and he's like, "Oh, okay, here we go." Hmm. And so if you're I guess on, I'm wrong on there. From the network I'm on in here in the Republic of Ireland, you'll often find you'll have no reception. <laughs> yes, I am bitter. See, now they're all having to follow Mike, Mike's lead now, now that they know that there's danger. I like the scene earlier when they're all talking and she says uh, something like, are you saying we're in a movie? And, of course, the character Mike looks directly into the camera and then back at her and is like, it's a distinct possibility. (laughs) Another little funny break the fourth wall kind of moment. And that's, I think that's what makes this movie so entertaining. I mean, we've, we've said it already, but it's just, I don't know. It's just, it doesn't take itself seriously at all. Like all of it is just fun. See, as much as I love, you know, something like scream, um, I think I could watch something like there's nothing out there more often than I do scream because I think scream, you know, it, it plays with those tropes, but I think it kind of does it with, a almost kind of a smug self-satisfaction kind of tone to itself. So it kind of loses its charm after the first, you know, couple of viewings. Whereas here, it's just so light and breezy. It's like, 
they're not they're you know they're not trying to you know say hey I'm better than what, what we're making fun of here we're we're just going to embrace it I mean, that's just always the feeling I got with the screen films as I much would, as I love them I still love them but you know I would agree I'm I'm not the greatest fan of the screen films I think they're okay but I I would much prefer there's nothing out there I think it it does it, I don't I I don't think there's that much of a similarity beyond the character of Mike and the character of Randy um, to be honest but uh, I much prefer this film it's it's more my cup of tea it's a monster movie it's got gore it's silly it breaks the fourth wall uh, yeah as you said scream I don't think it aged as well as um a lot of movies have I think it's it's, it's dated and a bit as you said, some of the dialogue's quite smug. It's like, you know, nostalgia plays a big factor. You know, a lot of people clamor for these fashions and, you know, this, uh, you know, the the film stock and, you know, the low budget and the, the nobody actors, you know, something like Scream. Um, they, not a lot of people are saying, ooh, I miss the 90s. I miss this fashion. I miss uh, these cordless head, head uh, telephones. Um, you just don't have that nostalgia looking back on something like that. Whereas here, you know, it has that whole fifties B monster movie feel, and everybody just clamors for that. It's it's timeless in its own way. That mouse that we saw becomes Bonnie Bowers' pet for the rest of the filming. The director has talked about that. That like you would always see her afterwards with that mouse on her shoulder. Oh, but sorry. I should believe know. that because I think Mike should know better than to you know scare someone like that. Yes, he should. Um, but I watched a clip of Bonnie Bowers on Howard Stern and she had like a pet mouse with her and she was like modeling a bikini. And I'm like, so it makes sense that she took to this, uh, mouse. I mean, she's like a more of an animal person than a people person, you know? Well, good for her. I sometimes feel like I'm that way. So you'd be behaving like Bonnie on, on set. Would you, if you were an actress? No, I think I'd be cool, but, uh, uh, I'm one of those people that I'm, I may prefer animals to most people. <laughs> I think I would as well, Nathan. Don't feel like you're alone. <laughs> I totally agree. Very misanthropic, but I love animals. Okay, so the scene is coming up shortly with the boom mic, and um, he says in his book that this was inspired by uh, uh, going to see the Richard Dreyfus comedy Let It Ride, which I think is set at a racetrack. Oh, yes, yes. See that in the cinema, and they, they must have um, projected it uh, unmasked, I think is the correct term, so that you could see extra footage at the top and bottom of the screen, so you kept seeing the boom mic coming into shot. And this is what inspired him for, for this, this moment, because originally it was meant to be a chandelier he swings across, but there was no chandelier in the house. So that was put pay to that idea. So that's when they came up with the idea of just letting the boom mic be in there. And I, as I said, I just love the idea that it just appears and disappears with no further reference to it at all. It yeah, just, not like, oh, where did that come from? Yeah, it just punctuates <laughs> the joke even better that they don't. <laughs> I kind of like that these two have ended up together for most of the movie, like the second half, because during the first half, like she hates him. And he's just kind of whatever about her. But then they're kind of pushed into this situation where they have to work together. So um, I like stuff like that. I do. I mean, she's a likable character. And I was kind of disappointed to hear that, that she wasn't that nice behind the scenes. It, um, uh, one of my favorite films is Dirty Dancing, which I didn't think I'd be bringing up on this commentary track. But uh, <laughs> I read the behind-the-scenes story that Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey didn't like each other, and I was like, no, that kind of ruins the film for me. Yeah, you don't want to hear that. It's like, oh, no, keep that a secret, please. You need to get that headlight fixed. I know. It's a danger. Of course, I don't think it's going to 
matter too much in the long run. No, they've got bigger fish to fry. Yes, 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 yes. Just to, to, just to mention before some of the uh, dearly departed, some of the actors and actresses or the characters that have kind of gone from here because um, th- there's a couple of things we haven't mentioned about them. There was uh, the um, Claudia Flores who played Janet. I think she's either Argentinian or Brazilian uh, who's the, um, the the woman who has uh, shorts ripped off by the, the monster and then disappears for half the movie and then comes back going to be kind of slimed more or less slimed to death but she um i think the director was saying that originally he wanted someone a little bit more bookish because obviously the character the film is populated by cliches isn't it really and so much you've got the jock and the blonde bimbo and the you know you've got the so he wanted a kind of the bookish girl which is kind of but he he went with her and i think she's you know quite good in in the role um I was looking to see what she'd been up to and she'd been in a few things. She was in kind of Argentinian soap operas um, in the in the 80s from what I could see. And I think her last role was in 2011 and she played a a predatory a lesbian pin-up photographer um, uh, in the 1960s, which sounded kind of quite interesting. Um, I love pred- lesbian photographers. Sorry? <laughs> I love predatory lesbian <laughs> photographers. I love that he throws the cat at the monster. It's, yeah, I dis- I do not like this scene. I disagree. <laughs> it's so wrong. Yes. Well, it didn't work. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Now this um, my the first thing I recalled about this movie when you said well, we're going to do a commentary for there's some there's nothing out there. Um, the one thing I said oh that's the film with the boom mic in it because I remember this is the scene you told me about Nathan before. Um, I think we discussed it on the podcast at one stage. So I was oh, looking. Yes. That scene. <laughs> and did it live up to your expectations? Oh, completely, yeah. Completely. I loved it. <laughs> well, that's just, I think that's just an alluded to uh, earlier in the commentary. I think the funniest moment is the, at the very end. <laughs> oh, yes. With the, your eyes are green. <laughs> with poor Sally, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which I want a nod to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I don't know. Her response is the best, too, which is like, why don't you like green? <laughs> I would be dead because I've got green eyes. So I guess they'd kill me, too, or leave me stranded. Well, now the director yep. that Sally has, has blue eyes, gave her green contacts for the end or something. Uh, like that. Okay. You can't really tell. It's a good gag, though. Mm. I think we're... Uh, coming upon uh, soon the big car crash sequence which apparently brought about the biggest fight on set which um, was uh, with uh, Bonnie uh, not wanting to get the coat wet that uh, she was wearing at the time I guess it was cold out and she didn't want to get the coat wet and you know this is pretty much further on to the movie where I guess she was definitely over over it and then there was a huge uh, row about it, and um, I think eventually she actually did splash some water on the coat. And she's not in this scene in the car either because she was um, – is this the day she called in uh, sick with food poisoning? Yes, with yeah. food poisoning. And, and then there was a one scene I think where the director had even mentioned that basically they bribed her with money like uh, to come back, I guess just extra money that they would pay her if she would just come back to, to film. So I could imagine it was a huge pain to, to deal with. Um, mm. You know, and you don't really have a whole lot of money and you're dealing with someone of that kind of character. It, it can, wow, it can really mess with your, your, and I don't want it to say like process. we're 
and I don't want it to sound like we're bashing uh, the actress Bonnie Bowers at all. I mean, we've heard his side. I mean, was, we haven't heard her side. Um, I mean, so just this is the fair. type of movie. You know, this is the type of movie I would I would pay to to you know hear her side of the story. By the way, apparently this the car that crashes into the lake is apparently it's a completely different model and make to the car that they're driving earlier. Uh, you know, thirty seconds earlier. That's oh. twice, <laughs> so they have to get a second car in. Which they painted the same color, but apparently it's a different make. Now I wouldn't notice because all cars look the same to me, but um, I'm sure automobile enthusiasts would spot that. And, and also, this guy the... apparently is a real plumber. He's okay. got his little cameo. But also, the people. Oh. Sorry, I was going to say the people that were uh, swimming out the lake aren't these characters, aren't these actors, are they? They were sort of uh, other people, apparently. Oh right, stunt stuntmen or stunt women. I mean, there's some kind of something kind of quite childlike in the kind of glee of the the, the ending of this movie, with like everyone running around. It's kind of Scooby Doo esque, isn't it? Which I, you know, those are my kind of favourite sort of slasher stroke horror movies. Um, when you go for the trashy side of things, is that kind of that fun, that kind of adrenaline fueled kind of fun ride um, where you've got people running around the house, slamming doors, and everyone, you know, that's. That, so- that's a point I've been trying to articulate for years. Like it's really hard to explain to someone why the tone of something like this is different than say something, you know, newer that tries, that tries to be fun, but they just, they keep failing because they don't. It's, it's, it it could be boiled down just to bad writing. I mean, these people just don't know how to write a character anymore. Also, I do think, I mean, I might be wrong on this, but I do think sort of quite often with uh, sort of modern horror slasher movies is that sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes I think actors and actresses might take themselves a little bit too seriously. Um, whereas with something like this, they, apart from obviously all the aforementioned problems on set, is that people actually feel like they're having fun with it. You know, it's actually sort of, you know, not taking yourself too seriously and allowing to go along with the ride. Um, it's almost like um, <clears throat> I've always thought that maybe the internet has kind of brought out the worst in people, and maybe they um, inflated sense of self worth. Uh, I don't know. It just it just seems like that to me. It just seems like uh, you know back then people were more you know just kind of breezy and go with the flow type, and now everyone's has access to you know all this information, and it's turned them into kind of you know almost cynical uh, human beings. So. I guess they think they're above something. They would think they're above something like this. It's, I don't know. Maybe I'm just crazy. It's just the feeling I get in today's climate. Well, it's kind of the, with the, the um, films like scream and all the films that, that kind of, uh, that kind of gave birth to, like I know you did last summer and um, you know, to a less extent, perhaps a urban legend. Um, but certainly we're actually with urban legend. I mean, the, the, the characters in that were all kind of mostly kind of TV stars, like uh, sort of t- popular teenage, early 20 something teenage stars. And it was seen as quite a trendy thing, wasn't it? It was kind of, there was a whole term in the early nineties of trendy horror, um, which is not one I necessarily, uh, you know, agreed with because I did enjoy those movies, but I, it felt like the, the, the characters, the actors and actresses were doing this, they were doing the films because there was a kind of hipness to it. Um, as in like it was something that they it was you know it was the in thing to be in uh whereas a film like this you haven't got those kind of pretenses it's more about the you know you're in a low budget monster movie it's making fun 
of the conventions of low budget monster monster movies and you know having fun with that uh so it's it's slightly less self-conscious perhaps it's like that saying um everything old is new again i I would not i would agree with something that saying in something like scream where they intentionally try to set out to make it you know hip and fun whereas here it just feels like um they weren't trying to uh, you know i guess they weren't really trying to poke fun at the at the at the film at like films that it's uh you know paying homage to it just felt like they were just having fun they weren't saying okay now we need to do this scene you need to have this sort of tone so it was you know so we're above the the material here i i just don't get that from something like this where i i definitely get something like that from scream hmm. and just to prove the the low budgetness of the of the movie here then uh, Bonnie Bowers is about to start throwing um, light bulbs on the floor, but apparently somebody was on the ground with a net catching them, so they didn't shatter, so they could keep reusing them for all, you know other takes. <laughs> I'm not sure how expensive light bulbs are in America, but well, I know they were not trying. That. To, yeah, sure. not that expensive. Impressive. But I know there was a scene, wasn't there, where they um, uh, there was a broken window where they actually took out the glass um, to sort of because uh, they could only afford, I think, one broken window in the whole movie. I just want to say, Eric, that was a very bright observation about the light bulbs. Oh, dear. Oh, the humanity. Oh, my goodness. Oh. If only we had sound effects for tumbleweeds and wah, wah. Yeah. I was wondering if Eric was going to do it, so I, I went for it. <laughs> it didn't occur to me now. Now, am I to assume that... Um, this monster is attracted to the light and that's why he's not really noticing them. He's just kind of like a moth to a light sort of. That's what I'm guessing. Yeah. But it's not something that they, they mentioned earlier in the film, is it? Yeah. yeah but he I'm does asking, seem drawn to it. it. Yeah. It's like a cat with a laser pen. Oh, look, now he's a turtle. Yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering if he is actually a space turtle and he just lost his shell. Maybe when he was entering the earth's atmosphere. Have you ever thought that maybe it's kind of a, a sad thing, like the monster itself? I mean, he's coming from a different world, so I mean, maybe he thinks of these people as his enemies. And maybe and, he's got family on this other world. Well, I wasn't <laughs> thinking of that, but thank you. <laughs> maybe sliming people and making their faces dissolve is a is a friendly greeting on his home planet. Yeah, maybe he just wants to be loved. I think we're all becoming a bit too Nathan for our own good. <laughs> I, I like to have a little sympathy for the characters and, and the monsters too. So the budget for the movie, uh, I think you initially targeted eighty grand for or eighty thousand dollars for the movie, but I think it went up to three hundred thousand by the time they were finished. Yes, the same budget as Halloween. Mm. Well, didn't he say that he, I think I, I read that he said that they went up to the house and filmed, well, more or less filmed the whole thing on video before they shot it on 16 mil. Yeah, he did a lot of prep, actually. He did a lot of rehearsals with actors. He, as he said, he he went through the movie on video, which was like, you know, a very elaborate form of storyboarding, I suppose. Hmm. So, yeah, he put prep into this. And you can tell, I mean, it has that, as I said, with that vibe and energy of a Sam Raimi movie or um, that type of thing. I mean, if you kind of, yeah, if you look at the ineptitude of some films, like something like Axum or something like that, it's, uh, mm. you know, this is is very accomplished. And again, for somebody so young to do something like this, and it kind of, it say, reminds me of, uh, you know, very much like the Sam Raimi 
uh, feel to that because Sam Raimi obviously did Within the Woods, didn't he? Uh, when he was very young, with again with his friends, you know, Bruce Campbell was one of his you know childhood friends. So it's um, it, it kind of reminds me a lot of this movie. Uh, they're very different in 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 a lot of ways, but uh, uh, it, it's a you know it's a positive co um, comparison. Yeah, um, Ralph, uh, the director Ralph met. Um Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi at a Fangoria Weekend of Horrors when he was trying to plug this movie. And uh, they saw, I think, they, I don't know if they saw the entire thing, but they saw the trailer and they, they gave him lots of compliments, but I don't think um, they ever stayed in touch. And actually, at the, I think at the same, at some similar uh, movie convention around the time, the head, one of the head honchos at Universal was scouting for a director for the upcoming Child's Play 3, and he expressed an interest in uh, getting a screener of There's Nothing Out There, but again, it didn't obviously lead to a gig on Child's Play 3. Because I was reading with it. It's a shame, because yeah. I, I, I'm sorry, I, I was going to say, I love Child's Play 3, but I, I'm kind of wondering what what the tone would have been like with a, you know Konevsky behind the camera. Yes. <laughs> Well, it probably would have led earlier to the tone of the later Charles Play movies, wouldn't it? It was slightly campier tone. Yes, that's what I would assume. Hmm. Because part three is already kind of campy as it is, but I, I can imagine, you know, someone with Rolf Konevsky's sensibilities would, would have made it even more, uh, you know, like you like you said, Justin, kind of immature, but kind of a fun immature. Yeah. The nightmare's over, everybody. They cooked it. You know, um, there's a scene in Trilogy of Terror where she cooks the Zuni doll at the end, but in that one, it don't work. I'm sure Chucky ends up in an oven at some stage as well, doesn't he? Maybe it's a fireplace. I can't it's remember. fireplace. Mm. Well, anything yeah. big enough. I was he... thinking, I remember him burned, but I was like, yes. <laughs> how did he end up burned again? <laughs> All right, it's time for the big escape and coming upon one of the best jokes in the movie. Yes. I mean, was it's just funny to think. I mean, was Sally just wandering the woods this entire time? Oh, for this scene here, by the way, um, when he throws the rock through the window, he broke the light at the other side, which was quite an expensive 1K light. Oh. So it, it cost a lot of money. <laughs> um, it, it would have been better just, just breaking the window. Was that a um, was that the the light? Was it uh, part it was, of the film production or is it part of the house? No, it's part of the film production. It was a, a film light that they'd leased, I assume. So that was yeah. That's <laughs> places, yes. I know how they feel there. We uh, we broke we broke a prop axe on the set of one of the, of the movie we made, um, and that was kind of heartbreaking. How we much? Had to oh my god! Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah. How much did it cost you to replace? Well, the, the prop axes were like almost $100 each. So uh, we had two of them. Um, our stuntman broke one of them. Uh, so, you know, we had another one. But uh, a lot of stuff with the, the continuity with the, the blood on it, we had to kind of cheat around uh, a broken axe. But it was it was interesting. She's got to get back to her video store job. <laughs> yeah. If she works in a video store, it might be, she must just have been dreaming she worked in a video store. Yeah, I think she must work there because she had some pretty like uh, you know, accurate dreams about these artwork for these VHS boxes. True. Yeah. Maybe maybe, uh, maybe she's just seen one too many movies working there, and this is 
the, the movie is the product of her imagination. Oh, it's time. They got to throw her out. I think the director was saying that this got um, the uh, this kind of bit in the movie got uh, a rapturous uh, response from an audience who kind of clapped till all the way through the credits. Apparently, so it's it's a, it's a real shame this movie didn't connect, wasn't able, you know, through the uh, the stars didn't align for it to actually get um, the correct recognition it deserved. Really, as a kind of forerunner for that kind of postmodern sort of uh, horror movie. <laughs> that is probably the best gag in the movie. <laughs> they just literally threw her out. <laughs> I love it. That's just a great, great ending. <laughs> oh, great, great time. Love this movie. Absolutely love it. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I admit that was a lot of fun. Well, yeah, and thank you to Vinegar Syndrome for having us uh, on this and also for um, introducing uh, myself and Eric to this movie. Uh, so, you know. Well, we, well, we hope you enjoyed. I guess it's, mm. what did you say, Justin? Well, no, I was going to say, well, I hope you enjoyed listening to us prattle on for the last 90 minutes about uh, There's Nothing Out There. Oh, yes. I've enjoyed listening to us. <laughs> well hopefully someone else has well if you have okay. then we are collectively the hysteria continues we are the kind of slasher loving podcast i know this is slightly out of our wheelhouse but enough in it to, for us to uh to get a lot of fun out of it but if you have enjoyed listening to us then uh we um how long we've we been going now seven or eight years a podcast uh, Dissect, going on eight years yeah and dissect and have fun with a slasher movie every couple of weeks uh, and you can catch us uh, for free on itunes or or apple Podcasts or whatever it is now or any good or very very bad podcatcher so um yeah well thank you for listening and i hope you've enjoyed this vinegar syndrome release as much as we have <laughs>